0: And if you'll leave your Bibles open or keep them open and turn over to the New Testament now, back to the book of Titus, after a a month away, we're resuming our journey through the book of Titus, and we're back in chapter 2, looking this morning at verses 11 through 15. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. Knowing that the Lord, by His Spirit, gives us ears to hear, so those that have ears listen. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, as we come back to the book of Titus after our Advent series, through the first four verses of the book of Hebrews, we're reminded a bit what the Apostle Paul has already established in these verses 11 through 15 in chapter 2 that is before us he's talking about the manifestation of god's grace by the people of god that's the call of the christian as we live on this earth knowing the first advent of our lord and savior jesus christ as he writes about in verse 11 the grace of god has appeared And then awaiting the day of his second advent, his second coming in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Apostle Paul's writings thus far has been for the people of God to instruct them in how to live in this age of waiting. You know, we might say of the Old Testament saints that have gone before us that they lived in an age of waiting. They waited for, for the first advent of the Lord Jesus. They relied upon the promises of the prophets that came before them. And now as a New Testament people, we live in an age of waiting as well. Waiting for the day that the greater prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns for his people. And it's all about this message that is to be proclaimed, the the lives that are to be displayed, this manifestation in which the Apostle Paul calls all believers to, here within our text, is a manifestation of God's grace. During the Advent season, we were doing our family worship uh, one evening around the the Christmas tree. Our Advent devotional has, uh, each lesson has a corresponding little card ornament that we were to put upon the tree, and we were alternate between Brooks and Anna Kate putting these ornaments on the tree. And I can't remember exactly who was to put the little ornament card upon the tree, but I do know that the theological uh, concept or the theological doctrine in which we were studying uh, that evening was grace. And, and this devotional defined grace in this way. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. God's righteousness at Christ's expense. Now, I don't think that's everything that we have to say about grace when we define it, but I do think that that is a proper definition, especially within the context of Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. Because Paul is saying that the great theme that drives the Christian life is the grace of God. Is the gospel of God. How in the person of Jesus Christ, He displays the grace that now changes sinners to make them Righteous. The Gospel of God that proclaims a a message of good news, of of great joy, that there is a possibility by faith for sinful people to be made righteous and to be in a right relationship with the Holy God through His Son. That is pure grace, isn't it? And have you ever thought about that, that grace that meets us as sinners? If we were to just simply go through the list of our own sins, we would say that there is nothing within us that deserves or or merits a right standing with the Father. It's all grace. If we were to look at the world around us, we would see a a wicked and perverted society, and, and we would say that there's absolutely no hope for revival or reformation apart from God's grace. And as Titus looks upon the island of Crete, you have to imagine that he sees the wickedness, the the sinfulness that, that exists here within the many cities in which the Apostle Paul has commanded him to go church plant in. He knows because he has talked to the local philosophers. He's talked to the local government officials. He even quotes them in Titus chapter 1 that this people that live upon this island, they are drunkards, they are gluttonous, they are lazy, they are sinners, and they even wear their sin upon their sleeve, we might say. They are are proud of their sin. And surely Titus would look upon this island, look upon these many cities, and he he would say, What can make this city right? What can impact this city for God? And of course, it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only by the grace of God that has appeared in the person and work of Jesus that brings salvation for what is said here in verse 11 is all people. Maybe your translation says all men. I think the ESV gives us a a clearer understanding of the original text as people, as both men, women, old, young. It it, it implies here what what Paul is trying to to state in that Christ came to save sinners, yes, but He came to save His people from their sins. This isn't a haphazard, ambiguous, all-people as in, there's some sort of possibility now for God's people to be, or all people to be saved. No, this is a definite, a definite work of, of Jesus Christ who has appeared that now salvation would be brought to His elect. And so you ask the question, well Matt, why does it say all people then? Well, just as it includes men and women, it also includes all the nations, All people groups. Of course, we see the culmination of this in Revelation as John, the apostle, sees the heavens open. He says, I see a people of all tribes, nations, and tongues, and they're all praising God, and they're singing to the Lamb who was slain. But in the practical context of of this Scripture that we're handling this morning in Titus chapter 2, that's good news, isn't it? We've already established how the island of Crete is something of a a trade hub for the known world. Ships would sail in and out, people groups would come and go. It was always consumed with, with multitudes of people spanning from the four corners of the world. And so as Titus now begins to manifest the gospel, begins to proclaim it with his lips, live it out with his life, It's a message for both Jew and Greek, as Pastor Don has already established. He's saying that Jesus Christ has come to bring salvation for all people, all people who might believe. All people who might confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And so when we have this manifestation of the gospel, this proclamation of the gospel through word, this living out the gospel through our deeds, it must be a free offer of the gospel as well. That we must proclaim boldly, unhinderedly. We must proclaim to all people, both through word and deed, that Jesus Christ has come and Jesus Christ will come Again, that is the the exhortation here for the local church within the context of verses 11 through 15. But of course this comes on the heels, doesn't it, of all the characterizations of of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul has already gone through great lengths to explain what the local church is to be about. Old men, old women... Young men, young women, husbands, wives, children, employers, employees, all the people of God who make up the body of Christ within the local church context. There is a job, there is a role to be accomplished. There is a way in which you are to live. And so almost in a summary statement, as we live in between the first and second advent of our Lord, he tells us again these characterizations of those who will manifest the grace of God through word and through action. And you see, right there in verse 12, the very first part of verse 12, that the first way we are to manifest God's grace is by our learning or by our training. And of course, the Apostle Paul here is is talking about our instruction in God's Word. Our instruction in God's Word. You know, one of the things that will bring about a clear distinction of God's people amongst this sin filled world that we are living in and sojourning in will be that we are a people who have a biblical worldview, that all of our thoughts are held captive by the scriptures. We are not given to the philosophies of the age, but we are given giving ourselves to the, the timeless truth of God's Word. And so what the Apostle Paul is declaring here in the first part of verse 12 is that we need to be trained up. We need to be instructed in the Word of God so that it might indeed fill or consume our minds. So that we might see the world around us how the scriptures see the world around us. So that we might see ourselves as the scriptures see us. So that we might conduct ourselves as the word of God tells us to conduct ourselves in. Or the ways in which God tells us by his word to conduct ourselves in. That we might manage our homes and our workplaces that we might be valuable members of our community, our society, in the ways that are pleasing to our Lord. He is saying that we need to be students of our Bibles. That's what he's saying. And of course he's speaking to this in an individual, as, at an individual level, as individual Christians. You know, the, the Southern General Robert E. Lee said, the education of a man is never complete. And that is what the Apostle Paul is declaring here to us. The education of a Christian, when it comes to the Word of God, is never complete. We must be a people who love studying the Word, who love to be in our Bibles, who love to plunder the riches of God's grace and mercy and favor to us in the person of Jesus Christ, as the Gospel is declared to us from Genesis 1 to the very end of Revelation. We're to be instructed in all the right ways of God and godliness, and we're to be demonstrations of what the Word declares, proclaimers of the message of our Bibles. You know, a church can really stick out in society if they are a people who are serious about understanding God's Word. Wouldn't that be a marvelous reputation of First Presbyterian Church within the Dillon community. That we are serious about studying God's Word. That we are serious about understanding God's Word. That we are serious about applying God's Word. That we are serious about demonstrating the grace and glory of God because we look like Jesus who is proclaimed in God's Word. What the Apostle Paul seems to be saying here is he summarizes everything that he has already established in chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 is that the way in which we manifest the grace of God is being a serious people of the Word. And that is something that is missing in the evangelical church today, I believe. Because we have churches that, that consume our nation. That are very shallow when it comes to their study of the scriptures. In fact, we have had churches within a two-hour uh, within a two-hour travel or distance from us who who said the pastor has said you can find this on YouTube. He said that he had had some complaints from church members that he wasn't going deep enough in God's word, and he says, "Well, I'm not called to go deep into God's word. I'm." called to to preach the simplicity of the gospel. And if you want depth, if you want instruction, you need to go somewhere else. We're about the conversion of sinners here. And of course, that's a false narrative that he was painting because the way that sinners are, are one, the way that sinners are brought into Righteousness, the, the way that sinners are molded and made to look more like Christ is being serious about the gospel of God as it's proclaimed in His Word. You know, there is something to digging deep into God's Word so that we might know about Him, so that we might know more about Him, so that we might know what pleases Him, so that we might know who He is as He is revealed to us in His own words. And so we need to be a people who are trained up. Trained up. And and why are we to be trained up? Not only so that we might stand out as a people who have a biblical worldview, but that that biblical worldview might help us to first renounce ungodliness, You see, we are to manifest God's grace by our learning first, but we are to also manifest God's grace by our living. And there's some traits here that are are given to us. And the first one there is to renounce ungodliness in in what we might call verse 12b, the second part of verse 12. This, This way in which the Apostle Paul writes is what we would call in the Greek language an aorist middle. And and I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but it helps us to, to understand the text because what it is declaring here is that you have an understanding, you have a responsibility in and of yourself to refuse to acknowledge any ungodly thing in your life. You have that responsibility. And so what the Apostle Paul will write in places like Colossians 3 is that if you see something ungodly within your life, you are to cut it off. Cut it out. Put it to death. Mortify it. And the Apostle Paul is saying that very thing here for us in verse 12. You say, well, Matt, how do I realize or how do I recognize the ungodliness that exists in my life? The more that you will train yourself up in the word the more you will see a holy God and in comparison to a holy God you will see how sinful and ungodly you really are and so you will begin to see the differences between you and your holy Heavenly Father and you will understand the commission for all Christians to look like your God in holiness and in righteousness and therefore you must allow the word to enable you to put to death sin in your life and to pursue Christ's likeness. Pastor Don had no idea that I was going to say what I'm about to say, but he has already said it. Praise God for when ho- the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon your soul. Praise God, give Him thanks when, when by the Word God begins to to prick your heart, to convict you of your sins because that means the Holy Spirit is at work. It's revealing to you ungodliness and it's telling you, telling you, telling you as Jesus told His disciples, cut it off. Cut it out. Put it to death. Don't give one second to ungodliness that has been revealed to you in your life. And he goes on in 12c, verse 12c, that we are to continually deny worldly passions, or maybe your translation says worldly desires. I think they work hand in hand together. That we are not to be lustful after the things of this world. We are not to be chasing power, pleasure, influence we're not to be chasing prosperity promotion or prominence but we are to be content in what the lord has given to us as a people and in that contentment we are to we are to pursue we are to pursue godly passions godly passions knowing that as we pursue christ and his righteousness as we Focus upon the kingdom of heaven. All the things that are needed here upon this earth in our daily living will be provided to us by our heavenly Father. That's what the Apostle Paul is getting to. Not only to to refrain from ungodliness, to kill ungodliness, but to also focus yourself on the kingdom and its righteousness. And the things that are needed in this world will be added to us. So we are to mortify sin. We are to keep our eyes upon Jesus and the advancement of His kingdom. And we are to, what it says there in 12-D, to live self-controlled. Self-controlled lives. We've handled this phrase before this This idea of self-control, he has brought it to the forefront in the the lives of ministers and elders. He has talked about it in the lives of older men within the congregation. He has brought it to the forefront of older women within the congregation as well, through chapters 1 and most of chapter 2. And we said before, and I'll say it again, it's this call to live sensibly. It's this call to live sensibly. In a sane and sober minded way. It, and I think that is speaking much more than just make sure you're not a drunkard, even though those two things go hand in hand. Actually, what I think it's telling us here, something that is being underlined for us, is that our rationality, our saneness, our sensibility must be grounded within the word of truth. It's as if in this summary statement in 11-15 through 15 that, that the Apostle Paul builds upon the foundation that is hearing the Word and doing the Word. And of course, that is in comparison to the parable of Jesus. One of my favorite parables in all the Gospels where Jesus compares the wise and the foolish man who build their houses. He says the foolish man is the one who builds his house upon the sand. And when the winds and the waves and the storm comes, great is the fall of his home. But the man who builds his house upon the rock is the one who is wise. And as the storms come, the rains and the winds come, and the waves crash against it, that house stands firm because it's built on the foundation that is the rock. And what is the foundation that is the rock? Well, Jesus says it is the foundation of hearing the Word and also doing the Word. Being instructed or trained up in our Bibles and then applying it to our daily living. And so as He talks about this idea of self-control, what does that mean? It means that we understand in and of ourselves. We have hid God's Word within our hearts and now... The Word of God controls us and it causes us to live this upright and godly life in the present age. But then there's a third thing I want to bring up very quickly. This third manifestation of God's grace. We have said that it's in our learning first, then it's in our living second. And now here in verses 13 through 15... The Apostle Paul says we are to manifest God's grace by our looking, our learning, our living, and now our looking. We are to be those, it says, who are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to be those who are continually looking for the glorious second appearing of Jesus We are to be a people who demonstrate God's grace while we are waiting, while we are looking, while we are longing for the second coming of our God and Savior, Jesus. We must be those who are always ready to meet Him. And if you'll just take your copies of God's Word and turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse speaks of this... In length, this idea of being ready in chapters 24 and 25. I want to read for us verses 36 through 51. I know that it's a lengthy section of God's Word, but hear this about always being ready for the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Here's what the Lord Jesus Himself says, again starting in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let, have let his house be so broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and the wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And and at an hour he does not know. And I will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see what the Lord Jesus says, don't you? Verse 46, I think, is the summary of this parable. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes what are we to do well that is described for us back in our text in Titus chapter 2 what are we to do we are to train ourselves up in the word of God so that we might renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and so that we might live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus. So we are to live our lives anticipating and looking for Christ. And we are to be found ready. And those who are found ready will be blessed on the day of the Lord. But those who are not ready will be thrown into the place where there is the gnashing of teeth. And so I ask the question, are you in faith looking for Christ to return? Are you living in a manner that is worthy and ready of the grace of God? Are you manifesting the glory of the Lord to a lost and dying world? And are you focusing upon Christ's righteousness and the advancement of His kingdom? May it be so in each and every one of us this Lord's Day. And as we look forward to the year of 2000 and. 24. May the Lord use us in a powerful way to advance his kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask these things. Amen.